I've spent, I spent about six or seven years, about seven years um, helping doctors and students prepare for their board examinations. And one of the things that I noticed was that while they were really well trained, they had, so they come out of school really well trained, but they had like uh, no understanding of how to get paid for those services that they were providing. And then, so I started wondering like, why did this happen? How did this work this way? And and so my my approach is always that I think it's not, uh, with optometrists, I don't think it's uh, outwardly financial. The reasons that you're coming to the, some of the conclusions probably for a lot longer than I have, but um, is is not consciously financial, but I think it's subconsciously financial. They, they understand, they, they don't treat a lot of medical conditions because they don't understand the revenue behind it. And they really get the routine exam refraction, sell a, a widget. Routine exam refraction, sell a widget. And then they do that for so long, most of them when they come out of school, unless they have really good mentors, that when they start deciding, hey, I don't want to practice this way anymore. I want to take care of patients. They they, they can't get out of that routine because they don't know the value of those services. And they don't know how to have a patient back and how to have a conversation about copays and deductibles. And, and so it just becomes way too complex. And so I think that's why, that's my suspicion on the why. Maybe I'm tainting our conversation, but the I data that you've got. Absolutely on I think you're on target there. It's... Um, it's interesting because it, you and I are two different generations of optometry, I believe. You're a young guy. I graduated in 1980 from PCO. And the, the mentality was we were almost apologetic if we had to bill for something medical or if we had to bring them back or we had to get a copay versus just running them through the widget of the routine refractive exam. And as such, it's it's been a very difficult transition and and not to disparage optometry at all i think it's a great profession but it it goes from the from the jewelry store eyeglass days to where we are today and something never transitioned through to feel like we're a part of that healthcare medical community that and and patient perception is as big a problem as the doctor's perception of it um, and there are very few ODs that I know that are broken through that barrier to have a, um, a medically oriented practice where the patients respect that and have an understanding that you're a doctor taking care of their eye problems, whatever it may be from myopia to vitreoretinal retinal traction from diabetes or whatever. Yeah, I think, and and, I, and what's always astounding to me when I, what made me reach out to you is your numbers, your analysis, and I want to kind of cover some of that within CMS data, um, but your analysis was striking to me because I, I think, golly, I've been doing this specifically, uh, working with practices to try to get them to do, to understand that value, to communicate that value to payers for five years, um, and, uh, and you know, guys like you and John Rampakis and, you know, all these slew of people behind me um, have been doing it for so long. And then you look at the data, 2016 data to 2019 data, you're like, hasn't moved much. So talk about yeah. the data, talk about kind of your aggregation of that data. And hello and welcome to Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. This is the beginning of our fourth year doing this, four years going on. And um, I had a lot of fun with this conversation with Dr. Ed Lowe. And he, I think, is a really great one for us to project forward into this new year by thinking about how our profession is going to be needed, really needed in both routine and medical eye care services over the next 10 years and even beyond. 
So I had a great conversation with Dr. Ed Lowe. I really enjoyed it. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I want to talk about the My Day Multifocal for a second. It's just coming out. And we had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple of things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was, because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before, was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa- our patients a lot of questions about their, pati- about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of 1 to 10 how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lenses. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. So my, so my focus for years and years has been uh, looking at the data, looking at the trending that the data shows and demonstrates so that it helps the profession and helps a practitioner running a practice to help them strategically plan for where things are headed. And uh, I've been doing this for years and for, for 15 plus years, I was chair of the AOA's Information Data Committee. We did all the state of the profession reports. Um, it got in the way of my day job, so uh, I stopped doing that. But I, I'm now actually clinically retired, uh, devoting more time just because I'm a numbers geek and I like looking at this stuff. So, um, so I track the data and I, I try to capture as much data as possible and probably the most valuable on services provided that I can find in the public domain is when CMS releases its Medicare utilization and payment data each year. So I use that as a proxy to show how involved optometry is in the aggregate with respect to medical eye care. Now, there are a lot of fallacies and you can punch a lot of holes in the numbers, but it's the best that's out there. Um, I, the Medicare utilization of payment data is Medicare fee for service. So it does not look at the Medicare Advantage programs, which now makes up 34% of all Medicare patients. Uh, so there's a large component there. And it looks at just the 65 and older elderly population for the most part uh, and does not look at the commercial population. So over the years, I've taken um, I've taken the Medicare fee-for-service data. I apply a correction factor for the Medicare Advantage programs. And I apply another correction factor for the commercial population uh, and just depending on whether it's glaucoma or cataract or diabetes, that correction factor is typically approximately 20% of if 100 Medicare cataracts are performed, 20 commercial cataracts are performed. Um, and I put all that data together and I take a snapshot of a given year. And then I apply to that uh, census data 
so that we can project out for the future. So I can look at my current numbers are looking at 2020 to 2030 mm -hmm. to give us a sense, where are we this decade and where are we going 10 years out? Um, in addition to that, I so that's the demand side. That's a, the utilization side of services and the demand for eye care projected out based on census data. And so I want to pause there. Hold on, because I know where you're going with this, but I want to pause there and say, okay, so when you analyze that data for Medicare, uh, for optometrists specifically. Tell me about how you're knowing whether or not you're classifying this as medical eye care, like a truly medical eye care service versus somebody that is just billing something occasionally to Medicare. Great. Yeah, great question. So we could have a uh, philosophical debate on this probably for a couple of weeks, but here's what I do, just trying to cut through it all and make it simple. Uh, and I readily agree that there are a lot of arguments that can be made to look at it differently. But the way I view this is the way Medicare is, you need a medical diagnosis to bill Medicare. So typically, a 70-year-old um, a patient comes into an optometrist's office, regardless of what the setting is, I don't care about that. Um, and 70-year-old patient, and I've yet to meet, as a practitioner for 40 years, I've yet to meet a 65 or older patient that doesn't have a medical diagnosis. I, I've been, so they yes, yes. Yeah. it's crazy. So have, it's crazy that the, this idea that we're going to need to have Medicare cover eye exams, it's, or, or that we're going to sell them some sort of supplement to cover their vision. It's a nightmare in practice. And you probably know that from your days when patients come in and they've never had, you know, managed vision care and they've always been a medical patient. And now all of a sudden they've got this VSP plan or IMED plan or whatever that they think they need to use. And it's like, you don't, you're not routine. You don't have those. You don't even yeah. need that. So, so, so first of all, let me back up for one second. Um, in a lot of the um, the data that I report on in the in the optometric literature, uh, I look at routine exams and medical exams. And my diet, my my differentiation is a routine exam is that the diagnosis code is a refractive code: it's myopia, presbyopia, astigmatism, hyperopia. Um, that is the routine refractive. And anything that has a medical um, ICD-10 code to it is a medical visit. And so the 70-year-old comes in and guaranteed the 70-year-old has one of and probably multiple keratitis sicca, nuclear sclerosis, some kind of keratoconjunctivitis, some, has something that's medical, even though they came in because I'm having trouble, I can't see so well with my glasses, things are a little blurry, driving at night, it's a little tougher, whatever it may be. The optometrist is one of two philosophies there. So one is the the OD who um, has been seeing this patient for decades, giving him new glasses or contacts every other year, every year, sees a patient, they have a little uh, nuclear sclerosis, a little myopic shift. They give them a new pair, a new prescription. Um, the diagnosis is nuclear sclerosis. The medical component, a 92014 is billed for the medical exam, a 92015 patient responsible refraction. The office probably isn't even billing, charging for the refraction, but they should be. And if right. they don't, right. that's a big no-no. It's a huge, um, it's not just a no-no, but it's a huge undervalue of the services that you're providing. I mean, for, for, for goodness sake, visibly values a, a basically a, a subjective vision test at 25 right. bucks. Right. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. Sorry. And, and <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know. 
I don't know if we can discuss in this kind of um, um, medium discuss fees. I, I suspect if you were talking about Medicare national averages, I think that would be totally fine. So, so with, with refraction fees, averages could run anywhere from fifteen dollars for a nine two zero one five refraction to I've seen it a hundred hundred twenty dollars, which right. is probably more apropos to the equipment and the uh, expertise and everything involved in it. Um, I don't know if you just saw the recent uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm episode with uh, Larry David having a refraction with an optometrist. It's great. But anyway, I digress. Um, in any yeah, case, so the patient, so this patient is seen, they got some nuclear sclerosis, the, the doc bills a 92014, and they do that all day long and all year long with all of their 65 and older Medicare patients. And that's all the doc does. Hmm. The doc never institutes any medical treatment for um they might obviously they're doing a glaucoma test or doing uh, fondoscopy but they never initiate if they see you know so, some early background diabetic retinopathy it's right out to the retina doc if they see yeah. uh, some visually reducing nuclear sclerosis it's out to the cataract surgeon yeah whatever it may be they're referring out referring out referring out and they're just basically old time optometry refractive care, but billing some medical. So to that point in 2016, 61, if you look at the utilization and payment data from Medicare, 61% of all licensed ODs in the country, 61% build Medicare for some exam, medical exam, a 99,000 code or 92,000 code for an exam, uh, 61%. Even just if it was just one time, that's all it takes. That's my that's my barrier entry is one. Um, so in 2016, it went from 61 percent to 2019. It went to just shy of 63 percent. So it, it increased a little over one and a half percent of all ODs over a three year period, billing Medicare for just a medical exam. So one could argue, okay, well that's optometry's involvement in providing medical eye care in the country as a short example of how to grasp it. But what I, what I say is that for me, the proxy of, of actually providing medical eye care is you gotta go beyond just doing that exam. You need to do some diagnostic testing, some interpretation reporting, and maybe institute some treatment for something. And so the minimum that I look at is you're either doing, the doc is either performing a visual field or an OCT, interpreting it, reporting it, and billing it. And if I look at that as the um, as a proxy for how engaged optometry as a whole is in providing medical eye care, the numbers drop precipitously. Mm. So in 2016, 27.2%, 27.2% of ODs build one or more visual fields. All it takes to build one visual field that year, interpret it, bill it, and I say, You've done medical eye care. What percentage of ODs do you think have a visual field machine in their practice? It's got to be higher than that. Yeah, it's got to be higher than that. And it's interesting. There was just some ODs on Facebook, uh, Alan Glazer's uh, site. He was just asking yesterday, how many of you have an OCT in your practice or plan on buying one? Um, and there, there's some data back when I was doing the AOA uh, surveys. I don't have it in front of me and I don't remember the actual numbers, but my guess is it's got to be 60% or more have, have a visual. Yeah. 
yeah, have a visual field. Um, even if it's like an FDT kind of screening field machine, they've got something, but they're not billing it. They're not doing it. They're not billing it. Um, so it's, it went from 27.2% in 2016 to Medicare's latest data, which is sadly 2019, it's as close as it gets, uh, went from 27.2 to 29.5%. So a slight increase. In OCTs, um, optic nerves of the OCT went from 24 to 27%. So to me, about 25 to 30% on average optometrists are really actively engaged in providing what we would consider medical eye care to the population. They're examining patients, they have medical diagnoses, they're doing diagnostic testing and probably instituting some treatment or at least a, a follow-up regimen. And, and then you would even kind of parse that further because you could look at prescription data, uh, prescriptions written to see how many are actively treating. Because you could make the argument even once you have that 27% and assuming that it was not just one, you know, there's a big proportion of that that's not just one field, but that but it's likely to assume that if somebody's comfortable enough running one field and billing it and interpreting it and ordering it, then probably they're doing a, a fair number, at least a few of them. But then you think, okay, well, what about prescription data? I, I've looked at these numbers. Have you looked at these numbers for like glaucoma prescriptions pharma, or yes? The pharma, I, I haven't looked at them in years, yeah. but uh, I know that's probably one of the more accurate. Yeah. I, I think that's, so I think my point is, is that, you know, I, I, we can talk about those numbers, but I think what's interesting um, is that now you're, you know, there's, because there's probably people that are maybe taking care of glaucoma. So they might be writing glaucoma prescriptions. Chances are they're probably also paying attention to dry eye, but maybe not. Uh, but but even then, the, there's those there's components of people that are maybe running fields, running OCTs, and then they're just I don't know. I'm not sure if I need to start this patient on treatment. It doesn't look exactly right. I know I have the wherewithal to bill it, but I need somebody else to take a look at this and bless it. And then they're not writing the prescription. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's. Um... Yeah, the numbers um, the numbers are less than we would like than we're led to believe. Let's put it that way. Than we're led to believe by, let's say, the AOA or state association uh, or what we read in the literature. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that. One is it's the setting and the equipment and the staffing that you have, and you know you can only do what you can do. The old saying: if 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 all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. Uh, you're doing fractions all day, um, but but my my messaging from all of this um, is that there's this tsunami of medical eye care coming that ophthalmology is not going to be able to deliver. And that's the and, part two of the of the big thing that you're looking at. And so, who are you going to call? Right. Um, I just saw with my grandchildren Ghostbusters too. So, who are you going to call? You're you're going to call the optometrist. Um, it's interesting in in uh, getting ready to have this discussion with you and looking at the CMS data that I look at. I I slice and dice it by optometry and ophthalmology, by CPT code, by um, uh, by state, by name. So, for example, I looked up what you did with two thousand in two thousand nineteen with Medicare to, to see if I'm legitimate. Medi- <laughs> how much Medicare paid you? Have how many? V- uh, tear film osmolarities you did, which was very good, way above average. Mm-hmm. Nice job. Um, how many exams, how many visual fields you did, and how many OCTs you billed Medicare for. Um, so anyway, good job. Yeah, interesting. So, but but you, um, know why? you know why? You know why? Mainly? Um, 
it's, you know, I get to do stuff like this and exercise my brain like outside of that. But the, the main reason is if you're taking care of those things and you're, and you're really managing the total patient, you don't, you can, you don't have to see 30 patients a day or 40 patients a day. You, you can make a very good, and I, you know, I don't need to, I, I just want to take care of patients that I want to take care of and we'll just address yep. all those things. Yep. Yeah, it can be done. And, you know, one of the, um, I guess one of the concerns that you and I kind of tossed this around in the beginning is how well are we training our students to work within this medical model? Yeah. What do you think about the, that? I, I think that we've, we as optometrists never really learned how to delegate well. Um, we, uh, <laughs> We should be delegating a whole lot more and really doing the brain power decision making, the diagnosing and treating uh, portion of the exam, not so much the data collection. Um, you know, obviously, I, I've seen in some in some practices where the the doc is actually performing the OCT or the visual field, hmm. which is just crazy. Hmm. Um, but um, it's. The training, you know, obviously you have to learn in optometry school, one has to learn how to do a field, how to do an OCT before you even learn how to interpret it. But it, it ought to be stressed that you're doing this not to do it in the future, but you're doing it just so you understand the basics of it and that your job in the future will be interpreting the results that someone in your office does. Um, and, and that's the efficient model of doing it. And to your point of you know, the billing and the coding and all those things that um, that are so critical to running an efficient, profitable practice, uh, all those things aren't maybe handed down or taught as well as they ought to be while the doc, while the student is still in the optometry program. Yeah. Um, so that's a concern, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that the challenge is, is they're trying to do everything they can do to get them to be really comfortable managing diseases, right? Managing diseases, passing boards, taking care of patients. And, and this, this, you know, the idea of, you know, how do you actually do this in a practice? Uh, it gets pushed to the wayside because they're, they have to be safe, right? That's the, that's the biggest thing. And I actually think, you know, you know, I certainly could come off as being, um, haughty in this. And I, and I don't mean to, because I think the, the, the reality is, is I think there's room for di docs to practice the way they want to practice. And I don't think that means that it's bad care. And I don't think that it means that it's, um, you know, that we shouldn't be expanding our scope of practice, because I think there's a lot of people that would listen to our discussion right now, probably on some of the social media sites that you referenced, that would say, well, this is an exact reason why we shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. Because we're not even using it all at first, but then you know you could say that about you know ophthalmology, right? There's a very small percentage of ophthalmologists that are doing probably the majority of the cataract surgeries in the country, and you know the rest yeah. of them are doing what I do all day long, and yeah. and I would say not as well as I do, <laughs> and not because I'm Chris Wolf, but because I'm an optometrist. But that's for another and, time. And you know, if I, if I were to have you know a, a a canvas to paint the picture of the ideal optometric practice, it's a group practice with probably two docs doing all the comprehensive eye care and then referring within the practice to the doc who does the glaucoma work, the doc that does the retinal work and the di you know, diabetic retinopathies and following those patients before they need to go out for lasers or surgery, depending on what state you're in. But, um, but really the, um, and that's another issue of um, the, the historical uh, 
concept that optometry never really referred to optometry yeah. much. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that could be an issue. I could see um, in a metropolitan area where an OD has a glaucoma practice and that's all they do. And they're relying on optometric referrals from the guys that aren't quite as comfortable doing it. The women that would rather, you know, let me, that's going to slow me down. Um, I don't know if you remember the, uh, I think it was a, a visa commercial years ago, a number of years ago, and they're going through like a Starbucks and everybody's swiping their card, swiping their card, swiping their card, and the line's going very efficiently. And then all of a sudden someone wants to pay cash and the line stops and it's stop, you know, everything gets bogged down. Um, and, and when one thinks about running a practice and running an efficient practice, there are efficient ways and inefficient ways to do it. And an efficient way to do it might be to have one or two docs of just going through the routine, daily, comprehensive, and it's medical and refractive. Um, and then as soon as you hit that, that visual field, that OCT, that fundus photo, that tear film osmolarity that's off, they go in a different direction to the doc that's going to be more efficient at taking care of it. So uh, Dr. Edlund, the, the, the pushback that people are going to have when they hear you say that is just that, well, that's not very easy for the patient. They're going to have to come back and see another doctor. Um, and for, for a condition that's that, plus they're going to have to see me for the, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I, I can imagine that's exactly what somebody will say. It's a good point. Uh, but that happens in the medical world all day long. Um, with, uh, and that's, you know, that's part of optometry's, um, trying to think of what the right word is, but a predisposition to not wanting to inconvenience anyone, uh, which is fine. And you want to be customer service oriented by all means. The best practices I see are customer service oriented. Um, but having said that, the um, the best the decision should first be made on what's the best care to provide. How do we do that? Then how do we do it with a customer service bent to it and do it efficiently? Um, and there's plenty of room for that comprehensive optometrist who's doing it all. There's no question about it. Um, so I'm not necessarily making a case for one way or another. I ran a practice for. For 20 years, I ran a practice with 26 eye docs. Hmm. I was the CEO of the practice. And um, and we had two retina docs. And we had two glaucoma docs. We had oculoplastics. And and then we had a, a, a whole team of optometrists who did all the comprehensive routine uh, along with they would follow some glaucoma patients and follow some diabetics. Uh, and it, it was like a, uh, a ballet. It worked out beautifully with all the right people in the right uh, the right places on the bus, but, um, but it's a challenge. It's not easy to do. There's no question about it. The, um, but you know, you're trying to be efficient with them and then you're starting to say, okay, well, what can I combine? Uh, what can I address? And then pretty soon you get to the point, it's like, um, we have to address, there's so much complexity to each disease state. We might have to see you back, you know, multiple times per year per disease state. Uh, because it, it gets so complex. And, and I think if you don't, if you haven't thought through that well, um, on the front end, it's just a recipe for disaster in a primary care practice. I, I think it can be done. I, I believe we're doing it really well in our practice, but, um, but I, I know that if you haven't thought through it, like you're talking about where you mold that dance, um, then, then it, people are just going to give up because they're going to hit roadblocks that are uncomfortable and they haven't thought through, uh, they haven't pre-mortem the thing to know what roadblocks are going to happen and then they fall apart. 
And so that that actually leads me to this other point that that you like to that that you talk about was is this idea that we have this impending wave of new care that's going to have to take place over the next ten years. So you know, what does that look like from a routine standpoint, and what does that look like from a medical standpoint, and and, and the the supply or the the supply of providers that we'll have available to us. Yeah, so so to me, the the two. Um the two biggest disruptors in our eye care industry over the next 10 to 20 years are one, the increasing demand for age-related eye care, and number two, the limited supply of eye doctors, especially in ophthalmology. And of course, you know, we've all heard the argument, oh, there are too many optometry schools. I can't believe they're opening another optometry school. Amazingly enough, as one looks at the that, that macro level, that 30,000 foot view of the industry, um, they're not enough optometrists. Uh, as a matter of fact, if one were to ask anyone looking to hire an optometrist today, they're having a real tough time finding ODs to hire. There are close to 2,000 open positions for optometrists. It has nothing to do with COVID and people not wanting to work. Wow. Um, there are, uh, if you look at, um, eyes on eye care, you look at the AOA Excel, look at all the all the job boards for optometry, there are all these open positions that aren't getting filled. We what are those positions mostly like? Like what types of positions are they? They're corporate, they're- The ones I mostly see are more in a, um, in a kind of corporate setting, I believe. Hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure, I don't look at that specifically. Uh, I just have more at the that, aggregate that's number. An entire, that's an entire year's worth of ODs. Sure. Yeah. So here are the numbers. Um, in optometry, um, let's look at the supply of doctors and then I'll tell you about the demand for eye care. So in optometry, there are 1,800 to 1,900 docs graduating each year um, from uh, the schools and colleges of optometry in the US. So let's say it's 1,850, let's split the difference. 1,850 new docs. There are um, 1,200 exiting each year, retiring. Approximately two and a half percent of the profession retires each year. They retire, they exit for whatever reasons it may be, um, but it's about two and a half percent of the uh, of the workforce. And when you think about it, two and a half percent equals a forty year career, a forty year professional career, and that makes sense. And when we look at the data on the average age that optometrists and ophthalmologists retire, it fits that perfectly. So. In optometry, the net increase is 1,850 new docs minus 1,200. We have about 650 new optometrists each year, 650 for the whole country, all right? Um, and as a, as a percentage, let's see, so I've got this percentage somewhere. So that's an increase over a 10-year period of um, optometrists of 12.8%. From 2020 to 2030, we're having an increase of 12.8% ODs in the country that increase. In ophthalmology, there are 480 residency spots each year. So that means 480 ophthalmologists come out each year. 420 exit each year for a net increase of 60. And that's not even looking at full-time equivalency because if you apply full-time equivalency to it, it's about 50 um, FTE new docs each year. But let's say it's 60. I can tell you of those 60, five are going to go to California, five are going to go to Texas, five are going to go to Florida, five are going to go to New York. Leaves you 40 
new net ophthalmologists for the entire country. Each year, increase in ophthalmologists is 0.3%. It's 3% over 10 years. 3%. The population's growing faster than that, even at this low rate, low birth rate, lowest birth rate we've ever recorded in the US, the aging part of the population is growing. So, so we've got a 12.8% increase in ODs over 10 years, not per year, but over 10 years, 3% in ophthalmologists. Having said that, now let's look at the demand side of the equation. Um, routine exams, according to Vision Watch, the Vision Council, there are about 100, there were 111 million routine comprehensive eye exams delivered in 2020, 111. Apply census data then to project out to 2030, and we're now going to need to deliver not 111 million, but 113 million routine comprehensive eye exams, an increase of 2 million exams that need to be delivered each and every year, 2 million. In medical eye care, when we look at medical eye care, it's 60 million medical eye exams each year. And these are, uh, it can be an intermediate, comprehensive, a brief visit, uh, whatever it may be, some form of medical eye exam, a glaucoma follow-up, macular degeneration follow-up, 60 million. By 2030, because of the aging population in the US, it's going to go from 60 to 76 million medical eye exams that need to be delivered each year for an increase of 16 million. With diagnostic testing, based on all those same criteria, it's another 10 million diagnostic tests that need to be interpreted. So in 2030 and getting close to, in the next five, six, seven years, as as an industry, optometry and ophthalmology collectively, mutually, need to deliver 2 million routine exams, 16 million medical, office-based exams, and 10 million diagnostic tests and interpretations each and every year. In addition to what we're doing right now. Correct. Above what we're doing today. And that doesn't include cataract surgery, laser surgery, intravitreal injections, sorry, intravitreal injections or anything of that sort. So... And one of the other numbers that just blows me away is the following number you mentioned earlier about, we know there are cataract surgeons that do the bulk of the cataract surgery out Mm -hmm. there, and there are. But if we look at the number of cataract procedures that are performed each year, uh, in 2020, COVID may have put a little dent in this, but the number is 4.2 million procedures Mm -hmm. in 2020, 4.2 million cataract surgeries. The average ophthalmologist does 400 a year. Now, of course, some do 4,000. Right. And some guys do 50, but the average is 400 cataract procedures a year and performed 4.2 million in 2020. Based on prevalence of cataract, National Institute numbers, based on census data of aging population, in 2030, as as an industry, we need to deliver 5.6 million cataract procedures. That's an increase of 1.4 million cataract procedures per year, 1.4 million per year divided by 400 on average means we need another 3,500 ophthalmologists just for cataract surgery in 10 years, 3,500. And we're going to have a total of 650 for everything. So (laughs) ophthalmologists are going to be spending more and more time in the surgical facility 
doing and not, more and so. not do my not doing minor procedures by the way they they were going to have to do office room office you know full on you know mechanistic uh surgery yes yeah. the um so so that's just cataracts that doesn't count intravitreal injections or whatever the latest technology is for treating um any kind of retinal issue uh that does not include uh lasers and you know there are a number of states now where ods rightfully so we're doing yag lasers um uh, for posterior capsulotomies or peripheral iridotomy but um the de- so the demand for surgery and medical eye care is growing exponentially faster than the supply of ophthalmologists to my point who are you going to call you know who's yeah. who, yeah. who going to be next and so um it's got to be it, it should be optometry. Now, we've all seen a lot of practices, a lot of really good ophthalmology practices that have certified ophthalmic techs who are really good at doing what they're doing. Yeah. And they're doing it on the auspices of the ophthalmologist. And that's cool. They're physician's assistants in ophthalmology practices. They're, they're, I know physician assistants in New Mexico doing intravitreal injections. Yeah. So, so someone's got to provide all this care who's going to do it, who's best trained to do it. And strategically, so my messaging is strategically, if we look at all this data, if we see this increasing demand, this flat labor supply or decreasing labor supply, depending on how you look at it, um, who's going to provide all that office-based medical eye care? And how do we prepare to deliver it? Yeah. How do we make sure that um, the training is there, you know, as you're helping students for boards, you know, do they have that wherewithal and that background to be able to deliver that kind of a care? Um, is the infrastructure in place? Is the diagnostic testing there? Is the staffing there? Um, so there are a lot, there are a lot of issues that need to be managed. And my concern is um, that we may be managing it <laughs> later than we knew that, you know, the, here's the wake up call. Let's get ready for this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, my biggest thing is, you know, I guess the last question I'll sort of pose to you would be, so how do we get that number from 29% to 50%? I mean, what is it going to take? Uh, You know, because again, going to the schools, because there, I do believe, to answer your question, I do believe that, that these students are coming out really well trained. The disconnect is is depending on where they wind up, they've learned how to bill and code and value their services on wherever they wind up. So if it's a commercial practice that's doing no medical, or if it's a private practice that's run like, you know, that's doing no medical, then then that dot gets in there and gets in the, the hamster wheel of whatever that practice is doing. And then that's what they learn. So when they decide they want to open their own practice or do whatever else, they, they've, they just repeat. They just rinse and repeat. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the, that's why I'm asking you, what's the answer? How do we get and, and I, I'm, I'm where you are. I don't know. But if we think through it, um, my first thought is, um, when I was, um, responsible for hiring docs, we had a large practice and then we had a private equity deal and we got, we had 180 docs and I was part of physician recruitment. So when I look at hiring an optometrist, who's trained to provide medical eye care, I look for a VA residency trained doc. So let's look at that for a minute, VA residency program. That may be an efficient model, although they don't deal with the billing, they deal with 
you know, in-office treatment, uh, diagnostic testing, and how to manage the patient. Maybe the answer is in the third year of optometry school, before they're sent out on externships, there's a whole, um, you know, six-month program on here's, you know, you get thrown into running a medical eye care practice somehow. Uh, I I would do a lot of uh, presentations to optometrists who are a couple of years, a year or two out. And we would talk about practice management concepts. And they would always say, uh, um, they would always say, well, how come we were never taught this? Well, they were, but at that point in your career, you're interested in all the pathology you can learn, all the treatments and medical stuff that you can learn or behavioral optometry, whatever it may be. You're not interested in billing and coding, but somehow, um, and maybe there's a mini residency for, for the first three months before you start practicing. I, I, I don't know, but it needs to be handled. It needs to be uh, structured. There needs to be a program. Um, and maybe it's on a state level, state optometric associations with continuing education, that there are special, um, whether you want to call it medical practice management programs or something of that sort, um, where you have a John Rampakis teaching the billing and coding side of it, and you have someone who's really adept at interpreting um, optic nerve uh, OCTs and macular OCTs and visual, and you put it all, you put the clinical together with billing um, in a mini rotation or a mini program, uh, because you're right, once they get on that hamster wheel, it's, they're done. Um, and, um, and it's, it's, this is happening. This this um, tsunami of demand for services, we're right in the midst of it right now. Uh, we're seeing it ever so slightly. I can't wait to see next year's numbers. But, um, oh, and one of the other things that I, I, I get a lot of flack on this one, one of the phenomena in the industry that I think is helping in this situation is the vertically integrated I care practices through the private through the private equity firms. So the PE firms are, for example, um, uh, I care partners just picked up Cincinnati Eye Institute. Uh, so what was the one of the larger optometrically driven acquired one of the larger ophthalmologically driven into a vertically integrated model? And these vertically integrated models lend themselves very very well to having optometry provide the bulk of the medical eye care within that practice. And um, under one roof, you've got it all. And that, that you know, there, again, there's a lot of pushback in private equity. Um, 14.5% of all optometrists in the US are in a private equity consolidated yeah. model. And 12% of all ophthalmologists are. 12, yeah, I track wow. it every week. Um, I track that every week. And uh, I've got every, I try to track every deal that goes on in private equity and look at the market share that is in consolidation. So there's, there's a, yeah, it's going to hit some ceiling at some point, but there's a significant number. And if one looks at those vertically integrated practices, they have a pretty efficient delivery model and billing and coding model. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, so I, I definitely see that that point. I, I would be one that would disagree. I guess where I, I think from your point on the economics of why we're seeing the things we see, that may be the case. My, my thought about it is that um, I actually believe that there's, you know, you boil it down to this comprehensive optometrist that understands like 
really the the evidence base, and then you have the you know the patient perce- so to manage glaucoma and dry eye and macular degeneration and you know scleral lenses because you know you just d- delve into these things and they're not that challenging, but it also allows you to identify if I'm managing a patient's glaucoma and I but I'm not aware of ocular surface, you know, the things I'd want to watch for, then I'm going to miss it. So I can't make the referral to the anterior segment guy. And so that that's where I would say that the patient's probably better served in that primary care optometrist role that has dug deep into all of these other things, as opposed to a, a kind of a spoked referral system. Because if there's not one person that's, that's digging into all of those, like, oh yeah, I'm seeing some telangiectetic vessels and I'm pushing on glands. Um, and, well, then those patients are going to get missed. But I do think from from a standpoint of what you're saying, uh, you know, because they understand that those private equity firms, they care about dollars, right? I mean, let's be honest. They care about dollars. So they're going to figure out a way to squeeze this however they can squeeze it. And that's one efficient way to squeeze it. The, um, you know, and to your point, I don't mean to, you know, sound wishy-washy about things because I believe in this vertically integrated model model is very efficient. But I also believe the private practice optometry model of three to five docs is, you know, probably has more legs than anything because it can provide the comprehensive care and it can do it in a more customer service oriented model than a private equity looking at just what's the the EBITDA bottom line earnings. So, so there's room for both. Um, Interestingly, patients as consumers select typically what they're most comfortable with. Right. And, um, and what I find some of the, the practices that are growing the fastest, thriving the most are the smaller private practices that really focus on customer service. Hmm. Now, I'm hoping that within those models, it fits your practice modality of that comprehensive eye care and really looking at, you know, both every patient comes in has a refractive need and a medical need and and how do you manage both of those at the same time and then how do you appropriately bill for it so that they understand what you're doing right uh is another challenge to all of that but there the opportunities i i give this presentation on um the uh, uh economic overview of the eye care industry and i present it to um to a lot of third year optometry students um, mostly by Zoom, past couple of years, and I present it to um, uh, optometric societies. Uh, and my messaging is, what a great profession! Right? Oh yeah, what great opportunities um, that I I graduated PCO in 1980. In 1976, I'm sitting in the lecture hall uh, on our uh, first introduction to the school, and uh, Tom Lewis, who was the dean at the time, was saying, yeah, "You're entering the greatest." You're entering the greatest profession ever, and I'm sitting there in the back row close to the door so I can exit quickly. And I'm thinking to myself, give me a break. Come on now. And I think back, that's that was 45 years ago, and no truer words were ever spoken. It's a great profession. It's uh, It lends itself just phenomenally to taking care of people, meeting people all day, having great work-life balance. Um, it's, it's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing better. And the opportunities for growth are phenomenal if you do it right. Richard Edlow, thanks so much for being on. This is great. My pleasure. I enjoyed the discussion. Let's keep in touch.